my disclaimer before we have this conversation is that, as you know, I'm not a historian and I'm not a political scientist. Um, I'm a pastor, so please fact check me um, on everything I say and question it. Um, the reason I want to talk about it is because how the U.S. sees the conflict in Israel and Palestine is very much rooted in an, uh, an interpretation of the Bible. Uh, so I want to talk about that connection. Um, and I want to give you space, uh, such a, a hard time um, in the Middle East, to process your own emotions or anger or fear or worries about this topic. Uh, so I want us to, to work towards that today. The Council on American-Islamic Relations saw a 216% increase in Islamophobic events since the conflict started. And the Anti-Defamation League reported a 400% increase in anti-Semitism as um, a result of the conflict. So it's affecting how people treat each other here in the U.S. And it's a really complex problem, and I do not fully understand it, and nobody in the U.S. fully understands it. We're not there. We haven't lived that history. Uh, but we like to act like we understand it because it seems like everyone in their uh, dog on in Instagram and Facebook has the answer and the solution to the Israel-Palestine conflict. Uh, so let's have some humility uh, that maybe we don't understand it fully. And it's a divisive topic. I don't know. It's probably going to be a hot topic on Thanksgiving tables uh, this year. But others in the world don't seem to be paying much attention at all to the conflict. I don't know if you heard about Kmart. And I think it was in Australia. They sold a bag with Mary Ham Mus, <laughs> which reads the same way as Hamas, the terrorist organization that initiated the conflict in Israel and Palestine. They responded by saying they were sorry, and uh, they, yeah, that, that was a misstep. <laughs> Some people aren't paying that much attention, maybe. So how do we make sense of all of it? The conflict is really about the land. Conflict over this piece of land on earth has been going on for thousands of years, but really it's only in the past hundred years that we see specific conflict between Arabs and Jews. Arabs and Jews had lived um, in the same area for thousands of years. Um, so really only escalated to what it is today in the past hundred years or so. The conflict escalated, as you all probably know, when Hamas, in early October, uh, deemed a terrorist group, entered Israel, massacred 1,200 people, and kidnapped um, 200. Uh, so Israel responded with um, missile strikes and an invasion into Gaza. Uh, and that resulted in um, over 11,000 Palestinian deaths, more than 5,000 children, and 3,300 women, and 1,800 children. They're still unaccounted for. And the invasion uh, caused 1.5 out of 2 million people to flee their homes. Uh, so why and how did this happen? So when the world uh, called for a ceasefire, Israel's prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, quoted the Bible, Ecclesiastes. He said, there is a time for peace and there is a time for war. And he said, this is a time for war. And the prophet Isaiah says that there will be a time when Israel's God will settle all the disputes among nations without violent conflict and you turning the, the swords into farming tools uh, and there will be no more war and there will be peace in the whole earth because God is a God of peace, not war. Except there's one problem with that. Um, 
Earlier in the Old Testament, God also orders the Israelites to enter Canaan and march from town to town and wipe out every living thing and move into their homes and take their farmland. God is God of peace or God is the God of war? Which is it? In Joshua 6, we find this story. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpets, they raised a great shout and the wall fell down flat. So the people charged straight ahead into the city and captured it. You all remember the story of Jericho in the Bible? This is that story. Um, they marched around the city and the walls come tumbling down. There's an old uh, Sunday school song we would sing about that uh, in Sunday school. We'd march around the room. My dad reminded me of this. We'd march around the room and sing this happy song about the walls of Jericho coming down and Israelites slaughtering every living thing. <laughs> and the walls come tumbling down. That's kind of messed up, isn't it? Then they devoted to destruction by the edge of the sword all in the city, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys. In Deuteronomy, we see where they uh, heard God tell them to do this. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are about to enter and occupy, and he clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, uh, all of these ites were really different kind of tribes in the region. And the word Canaanites was kind of the word used for all of the catch-all for all of these different tribes. And that Canaanites, later the Romans called them Phoenicians. They were called the Philistines. You remember the story of Samson? Uh, not Samson, Goliath. David and Goliath. Goliath was a Philistine, one of the Canaanites. Um, Seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must utterly destroy them and make no covenant with them and show them no mercy. And a couple of verses after this, God says, and if you marry anyone in these tribes, I will quickly destroy you. So God will kill both the Israelites, his chosen special people, if they marry outsiders, and God will kill Israelites' enemies. Was God a God of peace or a God of war? Anyone grow up watching VeggieTales? You remember the story of uh, Jericho? Josh and the big wall, and at the bottom, a lesson in obedience. Will we obey God and slaughter every living thing? And it's a VeggieTales story with cute talking vegetables. It's so strange when I look back at it now. So strange. I read a book by Dr. Pete Enns. He's a biblical scholar and expert in, in Old Testament studies. And uh, he said something really interesting about this story of Jericho and, and the conquest of Canaan. He said, biblical archaeologists are about as certain as you can be about these things that the conquest of Canaan, as the Bible describes, did not happen. No mass invasion from the outside by an Israelite army. No extermination of Canaanites as God commanded. And this bit of information may feel like pipes bursting down into your living room. Stay with it. It may wind up being a bit of unexpected good news. Why is that unexpected good news? Because maybe God didn't command them to kill and commit genocide on the people. Maybe they thought God told them to do that. So why is that story in the Bible? There. The story of what happened was written centuries or more after those events. 
And so archaeologists found of the 16 cities that the Bible describes just being demolished, only two of them actually have evidence of any kind of conflict. So there was probably lots of conflict and tribal fighting, which was everywhere in the world at that time. But there was not this mass genocide of every living thing. The Israelites came up with this story as a way to say, we are important, we're powerful, we deserve a home, we deserve a place to live. And how do you get a place to live in the ancient world? You try to kick out whoever's already there if you want the land. And so that's the way the story goes. This was a big relief for me when I read this. Because that was a really problematic story for me. Why would God command people to wipe out every living thing? That seems so cruel. I don't want to worship a God who would do that. And I read Dr. Enns, I'm like, okay, <laughs> maybe I don't have to. Maybe we can understand the story in a different way. But we do know that the Jewish people have had this history of being kicked out of the land. The Assyrians destroyed their home in the 700s BC, the Babylonians in the 500s, and then the Greeks and the Romans came in, and the Egyptians. There's so, so much conflict in that area. And the Assyrians and the Babylonians kicked the Jews out of the land and stole their homes and destroyed their homes in the temple. Um, so they experienced a lot of oppression for a long, long time. So it was under Roman control, that whole piece of land, until about uh, 700 AD. And then it was controlled by Muslims. Then the Christian army, led by the Pope around 1100, came in. And they said, we feel like the Israelites, and that's our promised land, and we're going to go in and conquer anyone in our path who doesn't convert to Christianity. And then Spain, they came to America and did the same thing. They said, we feel like the Israelites, and that's our promised land in the, in the new America, uh, so we're going to conquer it like uh, the Israelites conquered Canaan. And then centuries later, the U.S. came in and did the same thing to the indigenous people. So we see ourselves as Israelites. They are Canaanites, and this is our promised land. If God told the Israelites it's okay to wipe them out, then we can do the same thing. All these different empires fighting for power and for land and for control. You know, fast forward to World War II and the Holocaust, Nazi Germany... And its partners massacred 6 million Jews. But since 700 AD, there have been Jews and Arabs living in that whole area of land together um, for a lot of times at, at, at peace. Um, the Jews experienced harassment for several centuries before um, the Holocaust. They were kicked out of their homes all over Europe and around the world. Um, so they were always in this mode of we don't belong anywhere and nobody wants us here. Uh, so after World War II, um, along with this movement in the 1800s, this is like really a lot of information and, and class lecture, boring stuff, I know. But it's important history for understanding this conflict. 1800s, there's a Jewish movement called Zionism where they said we believe that Israel should be a nation, should be a state, and we should have our home, our promised land. Um, so after World War II, um, so many Jews started uh, immigrating back to uh, the Holy Land. 
And all the Arabs who were already there, there was a lot of tension with all of these new outsiders. Um, so the UN came up with a plan. So we're going to split the land. So we'll give some of the land to Jews, some of the land to the Arabs. The British controlled that most of that land at the time after World War II. Um, so they split up the land. The blue is the Jewish state. The red is the Arab state. Jerusalem's in the middle. It's kind of split down the middle, Jewish and Muslim. This is a little misleading because Arabs didn't have a state. Palestinians didn't have a state um, at this time, 1947. Then um, Arabs did not agree to this proposal. Why would we want people under British rule coming in and kicking us out of our homes? I wouldn't want that either. <laughs> Um, so what happened was Britain said, essentially, the Jewish state, you get to have your, uh, your state that you've been wanting, the Zionist movement. Arabs, you get to have your independence. And then Britain and Europe got out of there. They are like, we don't want to mess with any of the conflict. You all deal with it. So the Arabs, Palestinians, obviously didn't like all of the Jews coming in and displacing uh, them from their homes. Uh, so they fought back. And then there was a war, um, and Palestine uh, suffered thousands of more losses uh, than the Israelis. Uh, but when the Israelites invaded, not Israelites, Israelis invaded um, during that war, they lost a lot of that land. So this is a, an image of after that, that war, and Israel actually goes even further past the blue, the land that Israel had. Um, so now the Arabs have a fraction of the land that was promised to them. So Israel essentially lied um, and did not agree to hold up to the agreement of what land that they would have. Um, and then later on, Jewish people moved into the Arab areas and the Palestine um, and had settlements. So even in this place that's supposed to be the Arab land, um, you have these pockets of Jewish settlements coming up as a way of trying to push um, the Arabs further out of their homes. Uh, so there's been a lot of tough conflict over the years. Um, so that little strip on the far top, as you probably know, is Gaza. Um, when all of the Arabs were pushed out of their land, uh, something around 700,000 to a million Arabs were pushed out of their land, and they, two million of them were pushed into that little strip, and that's Gaza Strip. Um, so what's it like in Gaza? 16 years ago, there was a blockade that Israel put in Gaza. Um, so it's really hard to get in, really hard to get out. They control what supplies go in and out, and it, most people cannot leave Gaza. So it's been called an open-air prison. Um, it's the home of two million people, one of the most densely populated places in the world, uh, and it's one of the poorest places in the world. Nearly 50% of the people are unemployed, 80% um, are in poverty, below the poverty line. 97% of the water is undrinkable there. So only a few percent of people have access to fresh water. 65% are under the age of 24, and nearly 50% are under the age of 18. So some people in the Israeli government, not all of them, but some do not want Palestine to have land at all. They want Palestinian people to cease to exist. Um, and one ar argument that I hear is that, well, 
all of Palestine voted for Hamas, the terrorist organization, to be in power in 2006. So this is it's their fault. But if you look at the options in 2006, um, some say it was like you're either you're voting for the prison guard or you're voting for the bully of the prison. Both are really bad options for us. And at the time, Hamas was not deemed a terrorist organization. They had their election based on the idea that they would bring change and peace and reform. Have you ever voted for a president and they didn't end up doing what they said? That's exactly what happened with Hamas. They thought they were getting a good uh, option and they were very, very, very wrong. Uh, plus, because so many people are young in Gaza, most of the people who are alive, who even made the vote in 2006, aren't alive anymore. They're not there anymore. So that's not really a fair argument. The exit polls of that election in 2006, support for peace agreement with Israel, 79, almost 80% of Israelis, or Palestinians, sorry, uh, agreed they want a peace agreement. Should Hamas change its policies regarding Israel? 75% said yes. Under Hamas, corruption will decrease. 78% believed yes, it would. None of that happened. The Israeli government doesn't necessarily reflect the Israeli people, and the Palestinian authorities don't necessarily reflect the Palestinian people's views. It's just like if I and loyal to a certain political party, then whoever's president doesn't necessarily, what they say or what they do doesn't necessarily reflect what I think and say or do. Um, I think it's important to have that distinction in this discussion. Um, There's a recent poll in an Israeli newspaper that said only 28% of Israelis showed support for Benjamin Netanyahu. 28%. That's not very much. Almost half of Israelis said that they should hold off on any kind of ground invasion. And a third of them said it shouldn't happen at all. So what's happening between Israel and Gaza, Hamas, Palestine, most Israelis don't even support it. And so the reason there's so much anti-Semitism and Islamophobia is just people just see one group being mean to the other. and They don't look past the complexities underneath of what's really happening. But on the other hand, in America, 77% of Republicans and 69% of Democrats think the U.S. should publicly support Israel. And NPR poll said that white evangelicals have the highest support for Israel's response to Hamas than anyone. White evangelicals have higher support for Israel's response than the Israeli people do. But why do white evangelicals have such a passionate response to invading Gaza. Uh, Robert Jeffress is pastor of a megachurch, Southern Baptist megachurch in Dallas, Texas. He said uh, recently, the Bible predicts the final world conflict will happen on the plain of Megiddo in Israel when the superpowers assemble together to do battle. It sounds like a Marvel Avengers scene or something. I think we can see now how a regional conflict could quickly escalate into a worldwide conflict, and that is going to happen one day, and they are looking forward to it happening. I remember feeling that way, because I used to have the belief that Jesus is going to come back, that there will be a massive war, and that people will either go to heaven or they're going to go to hell. 
but then everything will be right in the world. <laughs> and it starts with conflict in the Middle East. So whenever evangelical Christians see conflict in the Middle East, they think this might be the end of the world. Jesus is coming back. One of our past presidents said, I don't know if you can tell who, but he said, we moved the capital of Israel to Jerusalem. That's for the evangelicals. You know, it's amazing with that. The evangelicals are more excited about that than the Jewish people. So based on what I remember being in that evangelical world, a more literal reading of Revelation and the war in Israel meant Jesus is coming back, so bring it on. But I think, does that justify 5,000 innocent children being slaughtered? Well, the evangelical response that I would have had when I was young, well, they're in a better place. Because they're in heaven, right? Then we're all going to die eventually and go to either heaven or hell, and they're in heaven. That's great. It makes me sick now. I understand the view because I've felt it and thought it, but now it makes me sick. How would our world be different if we weren't so obsessed, if we as Christians weren't so obsessed with the afterlife and we cared about human lives here and now? I mean, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is here. It's now in you. He said, how you treat people is how you treat me. What you do here, how you act, how you live, the way you treat people, it matters. I mean, that's why the prophet said, God said, I don't want your sacrifice. I don't want your devotion. I don't want your loyalty. I don't want your, your religious acts. I want you to do justice and mercy and treat people well. That's what matters here and now. That happens here and now. I don't know what's going to happen in the afterlife. Never been there. But I know what Jesus taught. What you do here and now is what matters. So my hope today in, in talking about all of this stuff is that it's heavy stuff, I know, um, is that we can kind of just move past and through all of the news headlines and Instagram posts and TikTok videos to see that whatever you're hearing on either side is probably not 100% true, it's probably biased. They don't have the whole picture, and this is a really complicated and complex topic. So I can support the idea uh, that Israeli people, the Jewish people, deserve a home that is safe and a place is peaceful to live. And I can also disagree with the Israeli government. And I can believe that Palestinians deserve a place to live in peace, deserve access to clean water. They deserve not to be food insecure, that they deserve not to have uh, their hospitals bombed, while also disagreeing with the way Hamas conducts their, uh, the way they interact with their enemies and be completely opposed to that. So there's no either or, there's no black and white in these things, and that's when you turn on the news, it's tend to what you see. It's either or. That's what you see definitely with our U.S. politics. You're either in support or you're against. And there's no room to see the middle. So we as people can learn to see the middle. And maybe if we can learn to see the middle and see both sides, 
And we can elect people who can also see both sides and see the middle and see the complexities. And maybe we can move the world a little bit closer to a better place. But we have to learn to see the complexities. Rachel Goldberg is the mother of Hirsch uh, Goldberg Poland, who was abducted from the music festival in Israel uh, on the first attack uh, of Hamas. Um, and he was brought into Gaza, and he lost his arm. He was protecting his friends from gunfire from Hamas. Um, but he, has, he hasn't been seen in a week or so. Um, and so these are Rachel's words, Hirsch's mom. I want things to go back to how they were before Saturday morning. And before I saw Hirsch's text messages that alerted me that he was in grave danger. I love you, and I'm sorry. Before Hamas launched its attacks, which have claimed more than 1,200 innocent lives in Israel and 150 innocent hostages being held in Gaza with no foreseeable way out, before my son's phone was a black box with no answer. But here we are, stuck in the awful present. Time is slowly ticking into the future with these hostages approaching a week in captivity. If he is still alive, how much longer can he survive? His wounds are grievous, and I hope someone somewhere is being kind to him, caring for him, attending to him. Hirsch is my whole world, and this evil is the flood that is destroying it. And I really don't know if anything can save it. If anyone knows, please tell me. To save a life, our sages taught, is to save a world. Please help me save my son. It will save my world. Every single person in Gaza, she says, has a mother or had a mother at some point. And I would say this then as mother to other mothers. If you see Hirsch, please help him. I think about it a lot. I really think I would help your son if he was in front of me, injured and near me. It is possible to recognize the humanity and the pain and the longing on both sides. When I look into the face of my enemy, I see my brother, my mother, my son. And that's so true, even with Israel or uh, Ukraine and Russia. There are Russians in Ukraine, there are Ukrainians in Russia, and they are related, they're family. They're fighting each other. So at what point will we ever move beyond pro-Israel or pro-Palestine or pro-America and just be pro-life, pro-humanity, pro-world? I mean, when I look at the history of humanity, it's definitely better than the arc of history than it ever has been. And that is hard to believe when you see the images of war and death. We have a long ways to go. But, I mean, it starts with each of us holding that worldview of moving beyond loyalty to any one group and seeing all people as worthy of love and life and peace. That starts with each of us holding that worldview. And carrying that forward in our conversations with our family who have very different worldviews. And having compassion for maybe their intense fear that the people they love may spend eternity being tortured in hell. That's a scary thought to think your child or your mom or your dad might experience that. So I can have some compassion that, they, yeah, that's terrifying worldview. 
But I also, I can point to Jesus and say, but Jesus taught what's here and now matters. And loving each other is what matters. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemy. So we can, maybe if we disagree on these huge political conflicts, we can find agreement in that at least. That all people deserve love and peace and life. I feel like we need to take a deep breath together. You doing okay? Anyone fall asleep? No? Okay. Oh, we are going to um, have some time to breathe and rest and process this stuff. Um, so we're going to do communion for a couple minutes, and we invite you to take part if you would like, if it's a helpful spiritual practice for you. Um, and the band is going to do a song that everyone knows, so everyone sing along. Um, John Lennon's Imagine. Um, imagine a world with no religion. I'm just ordained as Reverend Devin Wright, and I just said, imagine a world where there's no religion. So maybe there'd be a lot less conflict and hate. A world where there's love. So while the band sings, we can listen, or you can pray, or just breathe, or sing along. Imagine there's no heaven It's easy if you try No hell below Above us only sky Imagine all the people Hello. 